0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 16:13 through14. The word of God speaks to us. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This is God's word to us. Amen, hey guys, Good morning, frontline. How are we doing? Good, it's, uh, it's really good to be with you guys. If we haven't met yet, <clears throat> my name is Josh Curry, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this weekend has been so good for my soul. This has been another moment in the life of our church where I've been profoundly humbled and blessed that I get to be a part of this church. Uh, There's no other church I'd rather serve. There's no other city I'd rather live in. And I'm really grateful. I'm grateful to God that I get to be a part of what he's doing here. And I love you guys. Uh, I wanna take a second and pray for you and ask you to pray for me. And we're gonna dive in and do some good work together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we don't have to do anything today to get you to be here. Thank you that your presence and your power was here before we showed up. And I thank you that the places where we're confused, the places where we're bent and broken, the places where we're stuck are not beyond your mighty grasp. And I pray today that you, Holy Spirit, would come and illuminate hearts and minds, that you would fill us today with renewed courage as we follow Jesus that you would give us renewed hope, that you would give us renewed faith. And I pray uh, where our brains are foggy, I pray that you would blow out the fog today and let truth, eternal capital T truth, renew our minds. So meet us today, shape us, inform us, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. amen. Hey, so let me tell you where we're gonna go for the next three weeks. For the next three Sundays, we're gonna look at Paul's words to the Christian men in the church at Corinth. And these are Christian words written to men to cultivate in men gospel virtue, to help men figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. And as we dive into this, let me just tell you a quick story. Uh, 20 years ago, my wife, Nancy, and I, she was pregnant with our son, Elijah, at the time. We walked into a house that was for sale in Oklahoma City. And as we walked through the doors of the house, I was horrified by everything in that home. It had been renovated in the 70s, and it was the worst of 70s vomit everywhere. Um, it was shag carpeting. The kitchen had red AstroTurf. The ceilings were all popcorn, popcorn texture with flecks of glass in them. It was horrible. Smoked glass throughout all the bathrooms. We walked in and I looked at Nancy knowing she would say, this is not the house for us. And instead she said, Hey, the bones are good the bones are good. And so we moved in and we started the renovation of the externals of that house. And it has been an amazing home for 20 years. We've raised our kids in that home. Now, I tell you that story because sometimes we can be mistaken by self-help teachings in the church to think that that's the work of Jesus in our lives, that it's cosmetic renovation, that it's just the reformation of certain habits, and it's just certain patterns that he wants to adjust in our lives. But the message of the gospel is way more profound than that. It's actually, it's actually a renovation of God's grace that goes down to the very foundation of our essence as people. It touches everything in our life sins marred all of who we are as human beings and God's grace and mercy his love in Jesus is at work to reform and renew and revive all things in our lives so it shouldn't surprise us being that men are male down to the very essence of their souls and women are female down to the very essence of our souls that the work of Jesus is a work that does a lot with who we are as men and women that it speaks to our sexuality, it speaks to the fact that we're engendered beings and we will be engendered beings for all eternity. And I'm aware, I'm aware that even approaching the topic of sexuality and gender will create controversy in the life of our church. It will, it will smoke haters out of the woodwork. I'm aware of that. And I wanna to start today upfront by saying, I have no interest in living my life with a chip on my shoulder. I, I don't care about controversy for the sake of controversy. There are enough shock jocks in the world that job's taken. I don't need to do that job. What I want you to see is that my desire as we lean into this is to try to pastorally embody the instructions of Paul in second Timothy chapter two. Paul writes, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must not be quarrelsome, but kind kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. In my 20s as a church planter, there was adolescent angst that by God's grace, he's slowly weaning me out of. My desire as we talk about what it means to be men is to stand up here as a spiritual father that loves you that wants to encourage you, not as another coach that wants to belittle you brothers, or as another dad that rubs your face in your mistakes. I don't want to be quarrelsome. I want to be your friend. I want to help you see the beauty of who God's made you to be. Now, at the very same time, I also am not interested in avoiding rocking the boat, not touching places in our church where the world's ideas of sexuality shape the way we see manhood and womanhood more than God's word. I am okay as one of the pastors that serves and loves you with you getting angry as we preach God's word. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with us moving towards resistance in the room. I'm okay with touching sacred cows. And there's not a single part of me that wants to perform for the world's applause when the world is completely upside down and bananas when it comes to sexuality. I'm okay with us as a church standing on the foundation of God's word and swimming upstream in our culture, even if it means people hate our guts. I'm okay with that. I'm reminded of the words of the prophet Jeremiah to the honey-lipped priest and the prophets of Israel that were telling Israel what they wanted to hear. Jeremiah says they've healed the wounds of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. The Bible says that the wounds of a friend bring life and there's ways in which the next three days might feel in the short-term wounding. But in those wounds, I believe that the grace of God is sufficient to heal and to bind us up and to reshape us. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to have broken bones reset, amen? It's a good thing to have surgery when we need it, amen? And so with that in mind, let me give you just a few things by way of introduction as we approach this topic. The first thing I want you to see is that the sinful state of the world is one of enmity. Enmity. And that's a deeply important theological concept for us to grasp. Enmity is defined as the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to something or someone. And the result of sin in the world is that there's enmity between God and man. God in his holiness resists the sinfulness of man. And there's enmity between man and God. We in our sinfulness resist the authority of God. We want to be our own gods. And the enmity between God and man in sin also flows out horizontally and creates enmity between people. Strife and conflict, using one another, hurting one another. And the enmity between individual sinners leads to enmity between nations. And if you're even a casual student of human history, what you'll find is that since the beginning, there's also been enmity between men and women and between man and woman. And it's that enmity that fuels much of modern feminism and secular men's movements. It's enmity. And both the ethos of women need men like fish need bicycles and Any attitude among men or men's movements that seeks to objectify women or belittle women are both rooted in the father of lies who hates men and masculinity, and he hates women and femininity. And what I want you to see is that both radical feminism and misogyny are false gospels that lead to dead ends. Feminism can't cure misogyny any more than heart disease can cure cancer and vice versa. Both just kill the patient if we're not treated. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can create true and lasting reconciliation where there was enmity. The gospel reconciles us to God and the gospel reconciles us to one another. And what we find in the church, the household of God, brothers and sisters, spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers, husbands and wives is that the work of God in Jesus has the power to replace enmity between the sexes with a sense of deep delight, affirmation and appreciation. God loves men and masculinity and God loves women and femininity and both masculinity and femininity are his creations and a part of the story he's telling to reveal his glory and beauty. And in God's grand creation and story, men and women are created equal, equal in value and dignity and worth. But their equality is not a flat, boring sameness. It's not interchangeability. The differences between men and women that go down to the core of who we are, are divinely ordered and they're glorious. They're beautiful. They make life more reflective of the generosity of God. G.K. Chesterton once wrote in a poem called Comparisons These Words. If I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. Amen to that. God in his glory, God in his generosity saw fit to create male and female in his image to reflect his beauty. And in our moment, as there have always been, there are voices at work to try to store war between men and women, to stir enmity, and to erase the beautiful differences between the masculine and the feminine. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking to men in the presence of women, And that's a vulnerable thing, is it not, my brothers? I feel the vulnerability. Our brothers feel the vulnerability, and our ladies will feel the vulnerability. So why do it? Why not just write a pamphlet for our men or only do men's events? Why engage God's word to men in the presence of our sisters? Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, men are called by God to protect, provide, and initiate And both the abdication and the abuse of this sacred responsibility creates massive wounds in the home, church, and world. And I want you to understand that no matter how wonderful women's discipleship is, and by the way, one of the greatest places of gratitude in my heart to God for what he's done in the last five to eight years in our church has been around women's discipleship, see women discipled and released and following Jesus, no matter how wonderful women's discipleship is in the life of the church, it can't undo the abdication or the abuse of men's responsibility to provide, protect, and initiate. We need men. We need men. In addition, there is a long-term effort underway to try to erase masculinity, to try to erase masculinity, And I want you to think for a second about what happens to susceptible men, to men in particular that had a passive father or a violent father or an absent father, and what happens to vulnerable boys if the pervasive message of culture is that masculinity is in itself toxic. What do they do with that message at every turn being told that men are broken and twisted because they're not women? Well, the response is going to be one of two things, and these two things are quite literally tearing away at the foundations of society. The first reaction might be male effeminacy, effeminacy. Now, I want you to hear me say from the bottom of my heart and at the top of my lungs, femininity is glorious. It's wonderful, but effeminacy is perversion, It's perversion. It's the male rejection of masculinity, and it's a parody of the feminine. In addition, the other response might be machismo, machismo. Masculinity is glorious, but machismo is perversion. It's perversion. It's a ghoulish mix of enmity towards women and Hand-selecting cultural male stereotypes that have nothing to do with eternal measures of masculine virtue, essence, or service. Brothers and sisters, trucks, MMA, and beer are not connected to masculine virtue. They're not. Being a braggart is not being the same as a true man. Being loud doesn't make you a man. And we know this because Jesus walked, he didn't drive a truck. (laughs) Jesus Jesus preferred wine over beer. (laughs) And the only physical altercation that we have recorded in scripture from Jesus didn't happen in an octagon, it happens in the temple. And Jesus didn't do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Jesus used a whip. (laughs) To be men of virtue, to be men of virtue, we mustn't react and we mustn't have a cheap parody of what it means to be a man, to be men. We have to actually recover true masculine essence in the Church of Jesus Christ, being neither effeminate nor macho. Listen to these words from a decent book called It's Good to Be a Man. To be a Christian, a man must pick up his masculinity, not lay it down. The real dilemma is not between spirit and body, but between sin's corruption of our sexuality and God's original design. Our sexuality is an essential part of our nature, so much so that a man can be masculine without being virtuous, but he can't be virtuous without being masculine. To follow Jesus as a man is to follow Jesus into redeemed masculinity, to find your essence and your calling as a man. So why do this on Sunday with ladies in the room? Let, let me give you two big reasons. The first reason is that men need women. Men need women. The Bible says it is not good for man to be alone. Can I get an amen? If you've read Lord of the Flies, can I get another amen? It's not good for man to be alone. And, and listen, that's true, that's true of wives, but it's also true of mothers and spiritual mothers. It's also true of sisters and spiritual sisters. We need women of virtue. And what I want you to understand is that much of true masculinity is directed towards the blessing of women, the blessing of women. And when men are not around good women, they tend to not be pulled towards masculine virtue and responsibility. To learn to grow up and to sacrifice as a man is to learn to give your life away for the blessing and benefit of the ladies around us. And a good woman's presence brings life. A good woman's presence helps men desire to be masculine. So ladies, ladies, we need your presence. We need your presence. We need your prayers. Far from being resentful that we're taking three weeks to speak to men, my request is that you would be prayerful. That you would pray for your brothers, pray for your sons, pray for your husbands. However, ladies, please understand, we don't need your permission to pursue biblical masculinity because we have God's command and we're to fear God, not men or women. But your blessing, your blessing as we pursue redeemed biblical masculinity would add fuel to the fire and it would help every man in this church to grow, to learn and to be deepened. In addition, women need men. Contrary to the message of modern feminism, women need men. Sisters, I so badly want you to reject the lie of sameness and interchangeability. I want you to learn to delight in the glory of God's design for womanhood and manhood. And I want single ladies in our church to know what God's word says about men. Not so that you would hold out for perfection as a critic, but so that you would look for commitment and progress in the brothers around you as you consider dating and possibly getting married. And I so badly want moms in our church to know God's vision for manhood and womanhood so that you can be so that you can be an embodiment of the voice of lady wisdom as you raise up sons and daughters. So it matters. It's a good thing to have this conversation in the presence of both men and women. That's why Paul wrote these words to men in a letter to a group of Christians that would be read publicly in the presence of men and women. So today, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at the first two instructions that Paul gives about masculine virtue. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Next week, we'll talk about being strong and acting like men. And the following week, we'll talk about all that we do being done in love, which is the fuel that fires everything. So here we go. Be watchful. There are two watchmen that quite literally have shaped the course of human history and the cosmos. And every single one in this room will follow one of the two watchmen. One watchman failed in his assignment and he opened the floodgates of evil by abandoning his post. One watchman was vigilant and he laid down his life in sacrifice. And in so doing, he opened the door for the conquest of evil and the ultimate end of all evil. The first watchman was named Adam. We read about his assignment from God in Genesis chapter two, verse 15. The Bible says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to work it and to keep it. Now, please understand, both Adam and Eve received the cultural mandate from God. Both Adam and Eve as equal image bearers were given the assignment of God to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Both Adam and Eve were called to be viceroys that served under the authority of the rightful king of the earth. They were called to be a king and a queen on this planet. But Adam had a particular assignment, the assignment of cultivation and keeping. Another way to express those two words would be to say that Adam's unique assignment in the garden was building and protecting, building and protecting. In fact, the word keep comes from a Hebrew word called shamar, which means to guard, to protect, to beware, to defend, to function like a bodyguard or a soldier, to be a gatekeeper. And it's a word that's described elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the function of priest as they protected the sanctity of God's temple. God gave authority to Adam to be vigilant, to guard the holiness of the garden, to protect it from the forces of evil. And what happens in the story of the beginning is that in the midst of the garden, an intruder shows up. An intruder shows up. One that's bent on destruction, one that hates the living God and hates man and woman in his image. And God describes that intruder as the serpent, as the serpent. Older translations of the Bible sometimes describe him as a dragon, as a dragon that idea of a serpent or a dragon should bring to mind a powerful foe that wants to devour everything good. And that is indeed who he is. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter three, verse one, that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And what we read about in chapter three, verses one through six, is that the serpent came to Eve and he deceived her. He deceived her. He tricked her into believing that God was holding out on her and that her and her husband would be more free if they abandoned the authority of God and became their own gods. And in that moment, here's what the New Testament tells us. Eve's unique sin was one of deception. She believed the lie. But Adam's unique sin was one of abdication. The Bible doesn't say he was deceived. The Bible says he went passive and he went silent. The Bible doesn't tell us that Eve was off or that Adam was off, um, serving God, worshiping and reading God's word while Eve was falling into temptation. That's been the narrative in some churches. That's not what it says. Adam wasn't doing a quiet time while Eve was falling in temptation. Adam was standing with her. And Adam, as a cultivator and keeper, was assigned by God to be a soldier in the garden to fight against evil. He had delegated authority from the Most High to say no to the serpent, to rebuke the serpent in the name of God, to cast the serpent out of the garden. But in his abdication of watchfulness, Adam in that moment hands the keys of the garden Friends, he hands the keys of his wife's heart. He hands the keys to his future children's heart over to the serpent. And in that moment, because of the deep authority that God had placed on Adam and Eve, as they fell, creation fell into chaos. Sin and death entered in. And the Bible tells us throughout the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament that three great enemies fill the earth. We now live in occupied territory. And the three, ga- the three great enemies that are all around us and inside of us are the flesh, the world, and the devil. The flesh is not referring to your body. The Bible's very pro-body. Your body's a gift from God. The flesh is referring to your sin nature, that we all are like our first father, Adam. We're sinners by nature and choice. When the Bible talks about the world in a positive sense, it's talking about creation and human beings that God loved so much that he gave his only begotten son to die for. When the Bible talks about the world as an enemy, it's talking about the collective corporate structures of rebellion and sin that human beings build against God. The philosophies that are against God, the cultures that are against God. And the Bible says in the midst of the flesh and the world, we also have an enemy, the devil, that's not a metaphor, that's not mythology. He's a true created being that hates God. He hates you and he lives to steal, kill and destroy. Now I want you to pause here because even in the first three chapters of the Bible, we have God's mercy and grace. We have his mercy and grace. God had every right in that moment because the treason of Adam and Eve to end humanity or to abandon humanity. But God in his mercy and grace, even when he's speaking curses to Adam, Eve, and the serpent because of their sin, he gives a promise of hope. This is the seed that grows into the entirety of the Bible. This is the first proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Here's what God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's what God's saying. There's a day coming where the seed of woman is going to be a better watchman than the first Adam. There'll be a new Adam, a second Adam, and that second Adam will not fail in the watchkeeping that God assigned to him. He will be injured in defense of the garden, but he will kill the serpent. He will put his boot to the head of evil. And what we find in the fullness of time is that Jesus Christ was born seed of the woman. He was born without sin. He resisted temptation and he defeated the flesh and paid the penalty for our sins of the flesh. We find that Jesus comes to bring his kingdom to resist the world, an upside down kingdom where the philosophies of this world say man is God, Jesus brings a kingdom that says God is God. And he calls us to get out of the center of our lives. And Jesus does battle with the serpent, he resists him, he defeats him, and he will one day destroy him. Now friends, listen, this really matters because every single man as a follower of Jesus is called to follow Jesus into battle as a watchman. You were called to engage under the lordship of Jesus in the, co- in the cosmic conflict that God is waging against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Listen to these words from a book written to moms and dads about raising sons. Men who follow Jesus Christ, the dragon slayer, must themselves become lesser dragon slayers. This is why it's absolutely essential for boys to play with wooden swords and plastic guns. Boys have a deep need to have something to defend, something to represent in battle, and to beat spears into pruning hooks prematurely before the war is over, will leave you fighting the dragon with a pruning hook. Brothers, if you're queasy about the Bible's use of warfare language, and if you redact all the language of conflict and spiritual war out of this book, you'll be left with something that is completely incomprehensible because the work of God is a work of conquest through his son Jesus to restore humanity and restore creation to our right standing under our king. To follow Jesus as a man is to follow him into battle. The Old Testament tells us that God the Father is a warrior, and the New Testament tells us that Jesus is a serpent crusher, and the Bible tells us that adopted sons of the Most High God and brothers of Jesus are called into warfare. Warfare. Now, don't let this get you twisted. This does not mean that all men need to be into guns. This does not mean that all men need to be into martial arts. This does not have anything to do with how much you squat or bench press. And this is certainly not about bad attitudes or having a chip on your shoulder. Because the Bible tells us our struggle isn't with flesh and blood. And brothers, what I want you to see is I give you a highlight of your enemies is that if you don't know you're in a fight, you are going to get trashed. And we have so many men in the church today that are like tourists walking through a war zone. We're walking through the streets that are war-torn with snipers and with bombs and mines all around us. And we've got flip-flops on and disposable cameras and Hawaiian shirts. Like, the world in which you live is not Disneyland. The world in which you live is enemy-occupied territory. And hey, friends, the stakes are really high. You're called to be vigilant for your own heart and resist the flesh. That's Romans chapter eight, verse 13. John Owen described the flesh as the traitor within the castle that wants to lower the drawbridge. You're called to resist him. You're called to do war with the world. That means resisting the philosophies of empty deceit, according to human tradition, that are infused and empowered by demonic spirits that tell us what's beautiful, what's good and what's true, but are all lies. You're called to resist the evil one. First Peter 5 tells us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the stakes are so high, brothers, that it's not just a matter of you fighting for yourself, but just as Adam was called to defend a garden and a wife and future kids, your abdication of your watchfulness doesn't just affect you, it affects those around you. Part of the essence of what men are for is watching and warring. Watching and warring. Nehemiah chapter four is a beautiful picture of what it means to work as builders and keepers, cultivators and keepers. It describes men helping to restore the city of Jerusalem with a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. And brothers, for the rest of your life, no matter how old you are, as long as you live as a follower of Jesus, you're called to build and you're called to keep. You're called to war and you're called to build. And you can't build without fighting and you can't fight as an end unto itself, you fight to build. And the Bible talks about a guy who was one of the mighty men of David, a guy named Shema, who's an interesting picture in the Old Testament of just how absurd the fight feels sometimes. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, the Bible tells us that there was a field of beans. You get the feeling that it's a field in the middle of nowhere, full of lentils. And the Philistines are moving to destroy the children of Israel. And there's this empty field of beans. It's not a city. It's not a palace. It doesn't seem important. And the men of Israel are all running away. And there's one man named Shema who the Bible says takes his stand in the field. He draws his sword and he fights the Philistines. That's a really powerful picture because it seems to us as modern people that it's an absurd waste of life, like a reckless disregard for his own safety to defend a field of lentils, being willing to die for it. Like, why would you do that? Sure, if you're defending the president or if an intruder breaks into your house, but why would you fight for a field of beans? But in the whole story of the Old Testament, here's what we find. The reason he fought for that field of beans is because it belonged to the living God. It was God's God had laid claim to it. And the Philistines were intruders. They were usurpers brothers. So many of us are so used to reading epics and looking at big movies and being shaped by false battles around video games and all the things that we do to try to experience some sense of mission without risking anything. And what I wanna tell you is that the battles that God has called you to fight for may seem insignificant, but they have eternal significance. Your heart may seem small, but it belongs to God. It's worth fighting for. Your brothers in this room may seem small, but they belong to God. They're worth fighting for. The women of our church belong to God. They are immortal image bearers of the most high king. They're worth fighting for and leaving better off than where we found them. The church is weak and frail on this side of eternity. It's sinful. It's always a mix. And she belongs to God and she's worth fighting for. We are called, we are called as followers of Jesus to live our lives with a shovel in one hand and a sword in another, building and blessing and fighting. And in the midst of that call to follow Jesus into battle, I feel my insecurities. I feel my masculine failures. (laughs) There was a a moment, even this weekend, as we were doing the men's conference where I was assigned to lead guys and multiple things broke in my house all at once. And I felt like a total failure. I can't fix these things. Paying for a kid's college, I don't have the extra cheddar to just splurge and pay somebody to do these things. And I felt myself going into a shame spiral Like who am I to talk to men when I just, I can't even manage the field God's given me. Every man in this room, every man in this room has places where our weakness and our failure whispers to us, you're disqualified from the fight. You're disqualified from the fight. Who are you? Who are you to stand against the forces of darkness? What I want you to see, what I want you to see is that our calling to be watchmen is connected to Paul's second command. The way we exercise our duty as watchmen on the wall is by receiving the inheritance that's not connected to our performance, but it's connected to the riches of God in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't just say, be watchmen, fight really hard in your own strength, good luck. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. And that standing from the faith is receiving an inheritance in Jesus and fighting from a place of God's favor and love, not fighting for it. Brothers, you will never stand and fight for your wife consistently or for your kids or your church or your brothers or your city, unless you know who you are. And you will never, you will never be able to create in your own strength an identity because you were made to receive an identity. And what we find in the Bible is that the personal work of Jesus, his body of teaching and the teachings of the apostles from Jesus, the traditions that they handed down to us, Jesus' cross, his resurrection, the riches of the faith that Paul's calling men to stand in, that's your inheritance that creates your identity. It tells you who you are and it gives you the power and the grace to stand and to fight. When we receive the unshakable foundation of the faith, you have ground to stand on in the battle that God's called you to fight. Let me give you three things that standing in the faith once for all delivered will give you. To receive the finished work of Jesus, to believe the gospel, to build your life on Jesus's words, which he describes as a foundation of rock that can't be shaken, instead of sand that's always shifting, is to stand as a watchman On solid ground, solid ground. One of the reasons that so many of us feel disoriented is that we're trying to fight on quicksand. We're trying to fight on quicksand. We're trying to build our lives on people pleasing and power and performance and pleasure and money and career and the idols of marriage and family. And then we wonder why the ground's always giving out from under us to receive the faith once for all delivered and to stand on it is to be given solid ground on which to wage war. God answers the deepest questions of who you are through the finished work of Jesus. He calls you beloved. He calls you son. He calls you strong. Hey, listen, there's ways in which brothers, the new Testament calls you to boast in weakness. And there's ways in which it you. It introduces you to your strength And your calling, your calling as a man that's called the steward weakness and also steward strength requires that you stand on what God's given you in Jesus, which answers the question, who am I? Who am I? You're a son. You're adopted. You're beloved. You're justified. You're sanctified. You will be glorified. In addition, standing on the faith is standing on high ground, It's standing on high ground. If you try to face the world, the flesh, and the devil in your own ability, you will be punching up to giants that will break your back and eat you alive. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. The devil is more wily than you are. Your flesh is more mighty than what you can tame on your own. And the systems of the world, the gospels of culture, are far too convincing to sinful people for you to resist on your own. But when you stand in the faith, Jesus becomes your tower and your refuge. He's the high ground. The 61st Psalm describes the living God as our refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Brothers, to live your life and build your life around Jesus and on Jesus and for Jesus is to live your life on high ground because he's defeated those enemies. It's his authority over the flesh. It's his power over Satan. It's his defeat of the kingdoms of this world that we stand in, that we fight in. In addition, to live your life standing firm in the faith is to live your life on sacred ground, sacred ground. This is so important. It's not just that we receive a body of truth from Jesus, we do, and it's not just that we receive the teachings of the Bible, although we do, that show us how to live, but what we receive in the faith once for all delivered is the grace of God that leads us into a living relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. And the battle that God's called men to as watchmen is not a battle that we do solo by ourselves, it's a battle that we get to engage in the presence of Jesus, our high priest, and our older brother. In the book of Daniel, there's this moment where uh, three young Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stand against the idolatry of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar built a statue. He demands that all people, including Jews, bow down and worship it. They stand and say no. They resist the world. They resist the flesh and the enemy. King Nebuchadnezzar is enraged. He orders that they would be thrown into a fiery furnace. The furnace is so hot that the guards that go to throw these men into the furnace are consumed by the flames. And as they fall into the flames and the king looks in, expecting these three men to be burned up, he's shocked because instead of seeing three men alone, he sees four. And he says that the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Here's what happened in that moment. They weren't standing by themselves. They were standing in the presence of the son of God. They were standing in the presence of the most high. Where God is, is sacred ground. And and hey, listen, it's overwhelming to figure out how to fight well for our kids, how to fight well for our wives and not against our wives. It's overwhelming to know how to fight for the heart of our brothers, how to resist our temptations. But the message of the Bible, brothers, is that those aren't things that you're called to do in your own strength or by yourself. They're things that you're called to do in the presence of our captain and king, Jesus Christ. You are not left on your own. So my prayer is that you and me would receive in Jesus the holy calling as watchmen and men that build our lives on the faith and stand firm on it. My prayer as we leave into the Lord's Supper is that the places where you're feeling shame would be places that instead of being led into isolation and running from God, that you would open up to God in the next couple of minutes that you would ask him to do his deep work. And and ladies in in the room, instead of doing all the work, which I, I know is happening in the room, where it's like, well, here's ways that I'm called to be a watchman and here's ways that I'm standing firm in the faith, which there's truth in that. My prayer is that you would let the clarity and the essence of scripture speak and that you would simply come alongside the men in this room right now and pray that God would make them keepers and help them to stand on the foundation of the faith so that they would fight for us. So take your heads, bow them, and let's go to God in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, there's places where we're all asleep to the warfare all around us and inside of us. Um, that picture of a tourist in a war zone is so true for the church in so much of the world. And I just pray that there would be a sobriety, a watchfulness, a wakefulness that you would give to the men of this church. Think of that part, Lord, in Lord of the Rings where King Theoden, who's under the spell of the enemy, Is told by Gandalf, you would remember your strength much better if you felt the hilt of your sword. (coughs) God, I pray that that you would help these men to feel the divine calling that you have on them to guard and fight. Not as macho wannabe men, but as your adopted sons, Father. Not as loudmouth braggarts, but as humble warriors, not as fighting against flesh and blood, but resisting the world, the flesh and the devil and not in their own strength, but standing firm in the faith. And I thank you for my sisters, Lord. I thank you for their heart. I thank you for their prayers. I thank you for their presence. I pray that you would minister to them as we come to the Lord's Supper And I pray against the lies of shame. Jesus is not like the Pharisees, brothers, that love to bind heavy burdens on men's backs. He's not that. Jesus is not, he's not a Pharaoh that demands more bricks and doesn't give straw. Where he calls you, he meets you. Lord, help us, meet us and fill us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.